Hey folks, this is Anatoly Yakovenko, co-founder CEO of Solana, and you're listening to the Solana No Sharding Podcast. And today with me I have Tarun Chitra, who is the CEO and co-founder of Gauntlet, an awesome firm that I've been in touch with for, I don't know, probably since the white paper days when Kyle connected me to you. So like, um, how are you doing? Good. You know, I think uh, modulo, you know, the, the macro uh, disturbances, uh, you know, as good as, as good as you can be. I think it's been an interesting time to, to see a lot of uh, how crypto has responded. And uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, um, I think uh, one of our, one of Solana's investors put, put us in touch with you. And this was like two years ago. Um, I think it was pretty sure it was probably Kyle from Multicoin. Yeah, I um, think it was Kyle. And you guys were doing really cool simulations on not just economic, not just consensus, but economics as well. Um, and it seems like you guys have just been doing really cool analysis and simulation. And like the reason why I think this we wanted to do this podcast was when back in those you know rosy days when our biggest problem in the space was you know flash loan attacks and um, will inflation and uh, lending coexist well on a proof of stake network, right? Yes. <laughs> that that was the, we when we talked about that stuff. That was before the crash and and uh, our home arrest. <laughs> well, I think I think the crash has taught us a lot about um, those types of things. I think we've, we've certainly learned that uh, you know there's a benefit to carefully designing a lot of the uh, lending mechanisms that are, are common in, in the space and uh, that the flight to safety is, uh, is is not just Bitcoin anymore. It's really some blend of Bitcoin and stable coins. So, um, yeah. yeah. Yep. I, I honestly, like, I, I think this was, you know, like, um, this was a quote. I don't even remember which VC told me this about Bitcoin. It was after they were kind of watching the space and Mt. Gox happened, and the reason they invested in Bitcoin was because it didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> it, like it was a huge clusterfuck, right? Like, and I think a lot of people at that time, when we were, they were watching the space, they were like, "Oh man, this cool thing is dead," right? Like these jerks basically ruined everything, <laughs> but then it didn't die. Right. It just kind of kept going, you know, the price crashed, but like people s- still kept working at it. Um, and that's what I think is the lesson learned from black Thursday. And like you saw like things like maker have some problems, but it didn't die. Right. Die still works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as, as, as the, the shirts from the maker foundation say live free, die hard. Um, yep. but, uh, I think, I think, yeah, there, there's a sense in which being the cockroach, um, is really one of the most valuable things in crypto, um, sort of proving that you can survive through, uh, these, these types of attacks. Um, I think it also has brought to light sort of like how the Dow hack, uh, brought to light that, um, you know, you need to have a pretty safe programming environment or you need to be very careful about your programming environment uh, when designing smart contracts uh, to the, the kind of other types of attacks that come from uh, market risk. 
I mean, are, are you talking about flash loans as the the safety here of the programming environment, or the just kind of the the problem with the maker bots? Well, I, I guess I'm talking more in general about a lot of the the problems yeah. with many DeFi systems in which you do have these keeper bots, but the problem is you can't guarantee that there's enough uh, enough parameter exploration, right? In the case of the maker yeah. bots, a very it was very clear a large percentage of um, maker validators were just using the bot that the Maker Foundation posted on their GitHub, and that has a, a certain type of gas uh, adjustment mechanism. And if you look through historical mempool data, you can actually see that basically there are a ton of transactions that were trying to bid in the auction. They just like all kind of like were bidding at such low gas, they had absolutely no chance of being included. And so I think there's just like a lot more of an acknowledgement that external market attacks can be just as deadly as you know, a reentrancy attack uh, for for contracts that have to interact with the external world. Uh, so certainly like DeFi contracts or trading contracts. Yeah, this is like why I love the space is like, you know, after 10 years of programming, you kind of get used to all the possible race conditions you can deal with. And you get into blockchain and there's like a whole other couple dimensions. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah you know, like sure. it's not it's, yeah it's not just like two threads trying to whack each other now you have like these dynamic systems right that are have really unpredictable behavior that you have to kind of think about and you have incentives for ddosing the system like you know i think in, in a lot of other systems ddos is very rarely byzantine it's usually you know, it's kind of that, like the aphorism, uh, you know, assume assume incompetence before malice. Uh, I'm, I'm butchering it slightly, but the idea that like, you know, it's usually just like the node failed because the kernel scheduler was overloaded and then it just like didn't switch a process and then that caused some other problems down the, down the line versus like someone is actively trying to DDoS your, your machine because they know they'll make more money if they do it. Um, yep. But at the same time, it's it, in my mind, crypto is just fascinating because it's the world's largest incentivized uh, bug finding system. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if if nothing else comes out of crypto, it will have been yeah. the world's best bug bounty program. Because honestly, bug bounty programs are a little bit ineffective. I feel like you know, in their current current yeah, state. Yeah, yeah, utterly ineffective. <laughs> honestly, I've been I've been thinking. I mean, because we kind of pull the trigger on launching this has been in my mind like day in day out right is like there's really terrible tools for analyzing software um like quality like we just suck at it but we still we're still able to ship software that kind of works you know um and I, I've been thinking more about like kind of like how we you know if you have a complex digital circuit now, correct me if I'm wrong, I've been out of school for a while, but you kind of can make an estimate that if it runs for T, there's 50% chance it'll run for 2T, right? Um, it's kind of something close to that. Yeah, as in if you observe, uh, this is sort of like the waiting time paradox where like when, yep. if, if they're independent arrival times and you're waiting for a bus, it will often feel like two times the two times the arrival time because 
the expected time between arrivals is double the yep. parameter. Yeah. So like, so mean, mean runs between failure, right? Is what I'm thinking. Like you, you can look at Bitcoin and say, we haven't had a, a six block rollback for 10 years, but between the two of us, I feel like if we had to make a bet, you would say that it's 50, 50 chance that it'll happen in 10 years from right. Oof. That's a good question. I, I, right? I, think, like, I think the weird thing about it is that it's not quite Poisson anymore um, for a bunch of reasons. And I, I think like the the way the pools pools work and networking works, it's like just slightly off that it might not quite be this two times calculation. Yeah, but not, not far off, right? On an order of magnitude off. Yeah, definitely not an order of magnitude. So like Cosmos has been running for a year, right? Like if I would give it a 50% chance of running for a year without failures. One more year, right? And then two more years. That feels like a fairly decent estimation of like, when you take into account like how complex all of this stuff is. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that's that's important is that to think about with these complex systems is uh, unlike sort of uh, traditional programming, if you can provide incentives for people to manipulate the system in some way to avoid those edge conditions, you can kind of have a system that does heal itself from these types of things. So it kind of like avoids the uh, inevitable sort of, you know, there's always some error probability, but it avoids the error probability by like basically paying keepers of the system to, to make sure it doesn't hit that point. Um, I think that's like the thing that we're starting to see a lot more innovation on. Yeah. But I think ultimately that's still reflected in just a longer mean runs between failure, right? Yeah. So I think this idea of, of uh, infinite, um, you know, resistance to failure, like you never actually fail, uh, is a perpetual motion machine. And, you know, as we, as we all know, sort of that, that can't quite exist. The second law of thermodynamics eventually does hit you. And, uh, you know, entropy is increasing. Uh, so at some point, you're going to have to hit those error conditions. Now, the best you can do while building complex systems is really about figuring out where the biggest pain points are and elongating the mean as much as possible on along those pain points. The way this works in practice, at least at a, if you're trying to get 30,000 people between like five different companies to build a, a cell phone, is... Um, you put as much of the critical path into the common path. So when you make a call, it actually requires just about everything to work. So <laughs> basically at every point in the logistical kind of pipeline of this thing down from like TSMC and like the firmware people and the operating systems people and everybody involved, that it's just constantly like an army of VAs that, you know, effectively that's making calls right we actually had robots that would like hit an array of phones that would just make calls day in day out and if you could get your code into that path you could almost guarantee that it'll work but if it wasn't in that path you just find weird weird bugs later on yeah i i think it's this competition to ensure that uh you know the critical path is, is safe is the type of thing that crypto is supposed to enable more easily. Um, 
you know, I think I think the the only place that I've really seen something similar is is kind of in traditional financial markets where, you know, you are operating this kind of very bizarre decentralized system, um, although it was sort of stems from regulation forcing uh basically that basically forces all exchanges to act uh in a way that's favorable to consumers um and so what i mean by that is there's a regulation that was passed in 2005 called regulation neutral market service which means that every exchange has to send you the best prices of every other exchange um and so this this regulation, you should think of as a little bit like the progressive auto insurance ad that says, hey, we'll show you our price plus our competitor's price and you can decide. Um, this was now regulated into law. But what it did was it actually regulated distributed systems research because, you know, the exchanges themselves were not going to figure out how to synchronize their prices. And they, they faced this fine if they didn't synchronize prices. So they started giving market makers bigger rebates and bigger like sort of incentives to make sure that that the you know their exchange was posting the national bid best bid bid and offer, and they kind of ironically via regulation turned this set of exchanges that were kind of not talking to each other into uh, something that something that you know resembles these a, a distributed database. Uh, between these different databases that weren't quite the same and they all have different wire formats and they all have different custom UDP protocols. And and it, it very much looks like blockchains. Um, and I think the cool thing that we've seen in crypto is you've seen the opposite of that, where people kind of are incentivized to make aggregators uh, instead of like regulation forcing aggregators. Um, and, and you've seen this in the decentralized exchange space quite a bit. But I think... That's been something that, uh, you know, is, is really exciting in that you can kind of get the same uh, outcomes that you have with government uh, forcing reg- financial regulation, but with uh, pure just like economic incentives that are designed well. Yeah, that's like, it seems like the reason why that wasn't happening naturally in the exchange world was that because the the access to the exchanges was just too privatized like because normally like imagine if i if two exchanges at different two different prices i want to arb between them right for sure yeah there there were like capital requirements and capital sort of restrictions and um yeah the fact that the, the exchanges are weren't quite open to anyone being a market maker certainly made this a lot harder. Um, for instance, uh, you know, the CME, uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which is um, kind of the biggest commodity futures exchange uh, in the world, I guess, at this point, um, they they have a notion of membership and, and becoming a, a owning governance rights. So it's almost similar to owning sort of BNB or ZeroX, where basically you, ha- you, get, you have to basically pass all these requirements and basically get into becoming a member of the CME board of the exchange. And that membership has some percentage governance, right? You get to vote and your vote has a certain percentage vote. Um, not so different from a lot of the things you see in crypto, but that that uh, barrier to entry certainly made it hard for, um, you know, the types of market makers you see on BitMEX who are just, you know, random people in Asia, random people in South America, 
who are able to have a small amount of capital but still provide some liquidity. Um, and so I think the you, you've definitely hit the nail on the head with regard to the fact that the lack of openness is what required regulation, whereas you know you kind of have the inverse problem in crypto. And it's cool to see kind of this evolutionary thing where yet you know you have the Matt Levine version of the world on one hand, which is crypto is just learning the lessons of finance just at fast forward at 100x speed. Um, but at the same time, it's also kind of learning all those lessons without, uh, to some extent, without as much uh, of a need for heavy handed financial regulation. And I think that's yeah. kind of the really cool emergent thing to, that we we're starting to starting to see. Yeah, that's been like, I mean, I think that's been kind of the ch the story of the internet, right? Like we went from like anarchy to feudalism to like now this like open democracy of, of finance. And by feudalism, I mean like we had like, I mean, it's Google, Facebook. Or, or have, Google have we left feudalism? Have we left feudalism? When's the French Revolution? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's coming <laughs> right I, 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 don't know. I don't i don't know why people haven't haven't picked up on that meme yeah you know it, yeah. It, and, and like really really gone gone kind of <laughs> gone far on that but yeah i think the open access is actually you know something that a lot of people in traditional finance who kind of have the skills to 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 really uh design the economics well don't don't quite understand the reason for why that changes the game because they're just kind of used to government making the rules versus like a piece of code making the rules yep so like to me like the the biggest lesson learned with this flash loan thing was that like almost you should design your code to be ex financially exploitable meaning that like you want the, if there's a way for you to bug, find a bug through an exploit like that, then you should make it easy for the attacker to do so. Yeah, it also means that the threat model really needs to be assumed that there exists one really rich person who owns 90% yeah. of your asset. And, you know, I think that's, you know, I, I think the interesting thing about that is for proof of work, that's actually a lot harder than it is for proof of stakes still. Yeah. Because you can't borrow hash power easily. Exactly. I, I, if that if that did happen, I, I would say that it, it might be possible. But I think it's uh, it's it, it's just the demand is so low for for hash power derivatives still. Well, like a lot of exchanges are not dumb anymore. Um, after the Ethereum Classic attack, the <laughs> I think it takes two weeks for you to deposit Ethereum Classic into Kraken now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that <laughs> so, like, I think they can at least measure the risk there based on the current hash power of this thing. I think exchanges are not the ones who I'm, I'm more worried about. It's more the fact that miners themselves are, like, a lot less sophisticated than exchanges. And, like, I think if miners were, you know, a lot of the, like, industrial miners were more financially sophisticated... Well, okay, so we do have a flash loan attack for proof of work, right? It, it's uh, um, when Bitcoin was hacked, somebody could have posted, um, not Bitcoin was hacked, I mean, when Binance was hacked, um, 
they could have revealed the private key of that wallet and miners would have done fought over the the fees effectively yeah uh yeah i mean i think i think people overestimate the intelligence of miners and underestimate the intelligence of exchanges <laughs> if i were to say it, like like you have this predator prey economic relationship between them and miners are just by and large uh i think people whose risk tolerance is high uh, and whose sophistication is low compared to exchanges i mean you just described probably 99 of the space <laughs> Um, you know, I think I think there, the interesting thing is there is an increasing amount of sophistication, I would say. But I just I think, you know, this might this is also kind of true for a lot of validators. I, I, I've tended to feel because a lot, I think fundamentally, if I had a higher risk tolerance and was, was someone who wanted to, to, to start a validator, or run a validation company, I would actually really try to be a prop trading firm more than I would be a validator because at the end of the day, if you're running a validator, keeping keeping your variance and uh, you know expected returns down enough to adjust your capital costs and your potential like you know it, it's I, I think it's you know as you you probably know quite well it's not super cheap to run a validator uh, even though people were kind of saying that that was was true. So you need to really be smart about how you optimize your portfolio of, of, of tokens you're, you're earning. And I, I just t- tend to think that, you know, this first generation of validators, especially the professional ones, um, we will definitely see some of them kind of go under due to the not, not trading uh, kind of well. But I think the second generation of validators, who are hopefully not just exchanges, uh, we'll we'll realize this, and we'll start to see kind of this new financial entity that's sort of a half validator, half prop trading entity that's closer to a bank without being an exchange. Yeah, I'm. I'm I am. I, th- I think like the biggest risk factors for proof of stake is this kind of lack of clear business proposition for being a validator, like almost. And it's almost, I think, caused by, like, I think why it works in Bitcoin to be a miner is because you can, like, edge out your competition with, like, cheaper electricity, right? Or better ASICs. And you kind of get a return that's higher than the average. But with a validator, it's pretty tough. How do you get a return that's higher than the average, right? It's kind of like you're investing in marketing to get more delegations. That's a that's a business model that competes with exchanges. It's much harder to pull off for like a crafty individual, you know. It, it's I think makes it a much harder um, industry. Yeah, so I, I I tend to think you know this the idea right now of professional validators as a you know a standalone entity is, is quite economically unfeasible um, if, if only because of, of kind of this thing of like there's so much risk involved right now that like you need to be a really good prop trader and I just don't feel like any of the validators who have are currently kind of trying to scale up really care about that yet they kind of are, are really just focusing on the DevOps and, and making sure that things are safe which is what they should be doing 
Um, at the same time, I do think there is kind of a, 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 an outlet for a crypto financial entity to exist that is sort of this like hybrid of a custodian lender and validator that doesn't need to have an exchange. Um, and one of the reasons for that is I, I, I tend to think that a, if you are kind of a big validator and you're able to kind of provide extra capital efficiency to less capital efficient processes. So, um, for instance, cross chain transactions, uh, or, or, or kind of cross-chain DEXs, uh, you can actually ameliorate a lot of your kind of high, your variance and, and returns and kind of make it a lot more economical for both you and the people delegating to you um, than, rather than kind of the raw return profile. Because the raw return profile just doesn't have quite quite the, the natural economics and... Uh, hedging that you have in proof of work right now. And a lot of the reason for that is that proof of work has a natural hedging structure because miners know that they have a certain amount of costs. And as you were saying, you know, their, their costs vary uh, spatially and in terms of technology. Um, but those costs are also quite predictable. Um, and so so the futures market is quite liquid in, in some sense because the energy futures market is extremely liquid and extremely uh, well understood. Whereas in proof of stake, hedging your costs is actually quite difficult. Uh, and this is, this is what I mean by I think this first generation of professional validators um, is going to have a hard time unless they, they really invest a lot in prop trading. And I, I just don't think that that's the thing that the current batch is good at. But I think that we will learn a lot of really good lessons um, as we move to validators 2.0 about how to to make, to kind of emulate a lot of the um, hedging instruments and behaviors, um, but like maybe in a more crypto native way uh, by providing liquidity to cross chain dexes. By and when I say cross chain dexes, I mean something more like TBTC, which is you know extremely capital inefficient. Um, by most standards, but it, it is definitely the best way to, to, to do BTC to ETH. You know, I think a lot of these other kind of half-baked, uh, less fully fleshed ideas for, for cross-chain stuff, I think, are hard. And I think a lot of things that have oracles, obviously, you know, you, you, you take on a lot of risk yeah. with the oracles. But um, I think these extremely capital inefficient things are actually a great way for validators to um, provide, to, 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 to have some some notion of hedging instruments. Um, do, do you think as a validator, like you can take on basically like, um, I don't know, maybe you have some reputation or like, cause it, cause like I, it, the problem is like, I don't see like a way to like for a great validator, I don't see how they can scale. Like with Bitcoin, if I have a source of electricity that's cheaper, I just use use scale it all the way up until that source starts getting more expensive, right? <laughs> like how do I, I don't, I don't see like a good function for validators to participate in outside of the cost of the hardware. Yeah, so this is one of those things where I think that, you know, if, if there really is exogenous demand 
from either trading activity of this token versus a stablecoin or BTC, and you can bring a lot of that demand on chain, then you can provide transaction fees to validators, which is sort of what I mean by this, these other yep. opportunities. And in that sense, um, by kind of earning some portion of those transaction fees uh, per rata to your reputation slash stake, uh, you can start to get real yield, not nominal yield. I think the, the other thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, a lot of validators I've spoken with, I feel like they're, they understand the like technical constraints. They understand, you know, they may, they definitely don't, I would say may not understand the actual code base, but they, they know how to run a node. They know how to like add sentry nodes. They know how to like, you know, uh, load balance and whatever. But I think they underestimate the impact of, uh, of, of sort of like epoch periods and lockup periods on on sell pressure. Uh, yep. And then they all kind of sell at the same time, which is a cascading thing that makes it even worse for them. So in some sense, finding other forms of yield and which, sorry, I, I should say that I got into that tangent because the difference between real yield, which is like the amount you earn in the numerator, so dollars, Bitcoin, versus nominal yep. yield, like what you're earning in the, the base currency, um, is uh, it, it, you make it a lot worse when you have that type of behavior where everyone dumps at the same time. Real real yield is your inflation rate times what percentage of the tokens are not staked, right? Cosmos is only it's ninety seven percent staked, six percent inflation. So real yield is what zero point one eight percent. Right. <laughs> right but but, but that's so, real yield denominated in atoms if i start trying to take real yield so yeah so so rem remember there, there are two types of uh two types of ways to hedge bitcoin and this was a very important part about the bitcoin futures market uh i think early on was that there is uh you know what i think in in, in europe and asia for some reason is called a quanto but in the u.s you would just call you'd still just call it a, a future um but Basically, there are quanto derivatives, which are BTC derivatives settled in BTC. And then there's uh, stablecoin derivatives. So BTC derivatives settled yeah. in USC. And there's a lot of extra risk in, in, in holding the BTC uh, derivative settled in BTC. And I think validators are holding that quanto risk, but even worse, because basically by locking up tokens for an epoch and then getting paid at the end, you are basically holding a quanto on the future uh future price of the, of the asset and this this is where I, I kind of am saying you know validators need a some sort of orthogonal yield from the inflation curve which is some type of transaction fee model from trading plus uh yeah plus some 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 sort of way to to prop trade uh and, and rebalance their portfolio intelligently and i think like I said, I think the first generation, kind of like the first generation of Bitcoin miners who, you know, some of them went under after like the 2013-14 crash, will probably die um, or like have a really rough time. But I think the second generation, kind of similar to Bitcoin, will have figured out kind of, okay, the model really involves hardware optimization, energy optimization, and future, uh, you know, making sure you're hedging correctly and stuff like that. 
as well as lending. So I think there's a reason that the crypto lending market has blown up so much for Bitcoin and ETH. And a lot of it is demand for miners. Why are miners, you mean miners want to lend it so, versus they want to? Yeah. Or what? They basically let, borrow dollars against their Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then pay off their electricity costs in dollars. Well, they, that's just like far, farmers, right? And futures. Right. 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 That's what I'm saying. Uh, validators need to have a similar, similar scheme, but there's just yeah. no futures market per se. It, it's a very, uh, there's just no, uh, you know, there's not really a, there's not really a need for a futures market yet, right? Because there's just too much block space and not enough demand. Yep. Um, I always, I always imagined that validators would effectively become like that paper that um, on a minor arbitrage, but that is actually the business model for a validator, that they're the ones that should be evaluating the state machine and deciding which flash loan attack to run to earn their spread. Yeah, and, right? and, and I think I think the thing is the validators in this space right now are significantly less sophisticated. Uh, like I don't, I, I you know, I think there are very few of them who are analyzing the state machine or even paying attention to certain contracts, um, because that's just not their the the type the people who are in it are they're not kind of financially savvy. And this is what happened with Bitcoin too. Like the the early miners really got blown away when the $100 price crashed to $10 and a bunch of people put money in. Uh, and then there were a ton of exit scams with ASICs and, you know, uh, 2013, 14 was a wild time. So, so my, my crazy plan to bootstrap this is to have basically staking derivatives, which I'm sure you, you kind of get what that means. Um, and have those be what's traded on a DEX that's on Solana so effectively, having them, having the validators themselves, be the what's analyzing the other validators' performance, and then arbing between their loss of blocks, right, on the same network. So you want a you <laughs> want a futures contract on whether there's a reorg, is or am I am I simplifying it too much? It might end up being something very similar, effectively. But if I, but imagine like I have my course one stake, and I tokenize it, and now that token represents some portion of the of the principal and the rewards generated by that stake, which depends on course one producing all their blocks and and voting on all the blocks, right? And that's what's being traded. Yeah. I I could see that maybe working if like people are betting on like who who is going to vote on a block they produce and like split some rewards that way. But I just feel like the volume for that is going to be super low. It's just like hard. It's totally. It's not totally obvious to me why that is the optimal way um, to to do this. It, it could be. It, it, it's just. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I do, do you know any validators who are sophisticated enough to actually price such a bet or willing to place such a bet? I think they would be interesting in running the bots and seeing what happens. But then you get and to this the is maker just like problem. a way. To... <laughs> right. Yeah. But but makers survived, and now there's more sophisticated bots. Makers I, survived I, I, because I... they got liquidity. <laughs> I think that's... Okay. okay. Yeah. It, the it, are there better bots now for maker? 
did they fix that bug, right? Is my my question. Well, I mean, there clearly was a better bot. There was someone who bid zero dollars. <laughs> and you can publicly yep. see so who like, it was. <laughs> yeah, and did they like did they figure out that you should bid basically the difference of the gas price times whatever you think the price is, right? <laughs> so you always like you always have some price. I mean, this stuff is fixable, it just takes time, which I think goes back to the start of our conversation. Mean runs between failure, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you know, I think I think there's a lot of one should have a lot of respect for all the people who are trying to do professional validation right now. I just, you know, yep. just kind of like with Bitcoin mining, they, they're taking such a huge risk, and I think their investors maybe are not correctly pricing it because their investors don't realize how much you need to actually be a prop trader, a good prop trader. You can't be like a, a like an okay I take one long index bet type of prop trader, you need to be a, a lot closer to a, a rebalance arb, but like continuously rebalancing your portfolio type of thing to like actually make it profitable. But at the same time, there's some small chance that, you know, someone finds some crazy application uh, that takes advantage of the fact that we're in this zero interest rate world and gets tons of users using some DeFi protocol on some network. And that actually saves all these validators from their bad portfolio management. Like the increase in demand is so fat high that it's like, <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't have to be prop traders, but you know, that's the tail risk of success that I think investors are really hope counting on. Um, but at the same time, you have to a lot of respect for them for like taking this kind of ridiculous risk. I, I think like running running a professional validation service is like a very a, a crazy risk. Like it's 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 a very risky business. Do you think the space would exist if we didn't have the trillion dollar bailouts? Like, it, is the reason like this whole thing exists because people can take these insane risks? Like, I can go build a blockchain instead of working at a adver giant advertisement agency. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean that, you know, if we, if we go up the chain of capital, right? Like, I mean, they're LPs, <laughs> the LPs are closer to money origination. The LPs who, uh, who yep. put money into funds, they put, they put money into funds and then those funds invest in, in, in risky things like staking operators, which, you know, like I said, it's, I, of all the crypto infrastructure businesses, to me, those are the most, scary because you have to be a prop trader at least with custody you kind of have a floor on how much money you can lose because there's just a fix you're charging a fixed fee and sure it might not be a lot but there yeah. is like some consistent revenue in usd but i think for validators like it is just it is like you're you need to be running a forex desk but why is the why is the like the cost for them are fairly fixed like it doesn't cost any more to run like one network or 30. Well, I mean, it does in the sense that they're spawning more nodes and they have to have more centuries that scale linearly with the number of networks. And I, I think their cloud bills are, are probably not zero. <laughs> yeah, but the, the part of that is just like crappiness of the software, right? Stuff like that, like things that I think are fixable still. Yeah, I just say I'm saying the first, this first round of validation Yep. enterprises is is kind of for better or worse they're the guinea pigs they're the ones who are going to find all those pitfalls and potentially die on those but 
they will make it safer in the long run for 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 the yeah. long term like i'm still like you know while i think still think proof of work is going to be hard to unseat i think you know if proof of work is money then proof of stake is us equities and that's still a very valuable financial enterprise obviously in fact it's in some cases worth more than cash based on the current <laughs> situation uh, <laughs> and so i think it will happen i just think there's going to have to be some catastrophic blow ups of validators or like validators who just like really lose money because they didn't balance their portfolio and there was a flash crash in the tokens they're earning the most in and it's all of a sudden they have to pay salaries and you know, I, I, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a little bit like miners, except they don't have any ability to hedge at all because there's no demand for hedging. But, you know, am I negative on proof of stake economics? No, I think in the long run, there will be a good model that works and there will be demand and like people will build open access exchanges and DEXs and stuff on these networks. I just don't think the keepers are going to be the early profiteers. I think they will later profiteer, but the current, I think the first, first batch are the true, you know, wildcatters. Um, this analogy goes to the people who like find shale oil and like find exotic oil things. So these people call wildcatters and they, they, they're like, they go take this like 10 year risk of like, they go buy a bunch of land they take huge loans and buy a bunch of land. They spend 10 years searching for like, you know, doing all this crazy sonar and like solving all these crazy inverse PDEs to like try to find any sign of a tiny amount of oil. And, you know, they have a success rate that's just abysmal. Some a basis point of, of their experiments succeed. And of those, you know, it's even of even smaller one subset that, that, work out but there are a few wildcatters who make it who figure out everything and get everything correct and i feel like the early values are going to be like that there's going to be like some survivors and those survivors are going to be the ones who who carry the future so, so i would i would say that extends to the proof of stake network you think they will you think there will be only a few at the end it's just um what is the difference to anybody between the instance of Tezos that's running right now versus one I spin up on Google Cloud? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the end user has no has no transparency <laughs> into this. The only people who do care about this are 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 kind of to what we got to in the beginning are kind of the trader type of people who are like, oh man, like I get cheaper fees, or oh I get like the structure of this network provides me a more efficient way to do X. And like, I, we just have not quite found non-trading applications where it, it's like, that's important to the end user or the developer. Yep. Yeah. This is a tough nut to crack. I mean, what are you bullish on in terms of like non-finance stuff in crypto? Well, I mean, like I honestly think that what we're building is effectively like a programmable marketplace. That's all it is. Like, so it is by definition a financial thing. What you do with it is you like input complicated futures or options agreements, right? That are, that have some like interesting UX <laughs> and that's it. And that that's all it can do. Like, 
even if those items or whatever you're you're building these complicated things are like for entertainment right like maybe it's karma on reddit or it's a hat in world of warcraft but this this totally dates me i guess when i used to play this <laughs> game so <laughs> right but like at the end of the day that's all it is is right is like i want this thing or like i want to make a uh, like a bet that the value of this thing is going to go up or down relative to something but now, else. But now, now, now validators are taking strictly all of the convexity risk on those if we take the analogy you want to say of like of it being an option. Okay. Cool. Um, I think we, we kind of need to wrap up anyways because I have... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, sounds good. Well, hey, it was, it was great, great chatting. And, uh, you know, thanks for having me on and letting me express my uh, concerns about validators. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, this was a, a super fun conversation. Like, I think every time I talk to you online, it basically is kind of about the stuff. Um, so it's been really fun to like kind of share these conversations with our listeners. And um, yeah. yeah, awesome. Cool. Well, um, I'm excited about the work you're doing and really, it's really cool to see the stuff that's coming out of Gauntlet uh, and the kind of analysis you guys are doing, I think is really moving the space forward. So um, thank you so much. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I view this in the historical lens as, uh, you know, the invention of how to value options in the 1980s made the valuation of equity markets a lot more efficient. And I think for, for proof of stake in DeFi, once people have those valuation models, uh, you know, we can, you can grow the market a lot more. And, and I think that's, that's like a key building step. So hopefully we can provide a little bit of that. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you for, for being here. <laughs>